You're listening to Conversation Balloons, interviews with experts and friends about how the generations can help each other thrive. I'm your host, Leah Farish. Check out this episode. Today on Conversation Balloons, we're giving you something a little bit different. It's kind of a Christmas present. I'm having a wonderful young actress read a story for us that has a kind of a, the flavor of a Dickens Christmas story. And uh, it's by George MacDonald, who was a great favorite of C.S. Lewis's. George MacDonald wrote a story called The Gifts of the Child Christ in the 1800s. And it has that quaint bit of uh, melodrama and poignancy and irony that many Victorian tales have. And I hope you enjoy it. Our reader is Abigail Broker, and she does a lot of character work and voice acting, and I think you'll enjoy her bringing us this Christmas treat. The Gifts of the Child Christ by George MacDonald My hearers, we grow old, said the preacher. Be it summer, be it spring, with us now, autumn will soon settle down into winter, that winter whose snow melts only in the grave. Happy the man who is able to believe that old age itself, with its pitiable decays and sad dreams of youth, is the chastening of the Lord, a sure sign of his love in his fatherhood. It was the first Sunday in Advent, but the chastening of the Lord came into almost every sermon that man preached. Eloquent, but after all, can this kind of thing be true? Said to himself a man of about thirty. For many years he had thought he believed this kind of thing, but of late he was not so sure. Beside him sat his wife, in her new winter bonnet, her pretty face turned up towards the preacher, but her eyes, nothing else, revealed that she was not listening. She was much younger than her husband, hardly twenty, indeed. In the corner of the pew sat a pale-faced child, about five, sucking her thumb and staring at the preacher. The sermon over, they walked home in proximity. The husband looked gloomy, and his eyes sought the ground. The wife looked more smiling than cheerful. Behind them walked the child steadily, with level-fronting eyelids. It was a late-built region of large, commonplace houses, and at one of them they stopped and entered. The door of the dining room was open, showing the table laid for their Sunday dinner. The gentleman passed on to the library behind it, the lady went up to her bedroom, and the child a stage higher to the nursery. It was half an hour to dinner. Mr. Greatrick sat down, drummed with his fingers on the arm of his easy chair, took up a book of Arctic exploration, threw it again on the table, got up, and went to the smoking room. He had built it for his wife's sake, but was often glad of it for his own. Again, he seated himself, took a cigar, and smoked gloomily. Having reached her bedroom, Mrs. Greatrix took off her bonnet and stood for ten minutes turning it round and round. She was meditating what it lacked of perfection rather than brooding over its merits. She was keen in bonnets. Little Sophie, or as she called herself, Fozy, found her nurse Alice in the nursery, but she was lost in the pages of a certain London weekly, which had found her in the mood open to its influences, and did not even look up when the child entered. With some effort, Fozy drew off her gloves and with more difficulty untied her hat. Then she took off her jacket, smoothed her hair, and retreated to a corner. There, a large, shabby doll lay upon her little chair. She took it up, disposed it gently upon the bed, seated herself in its place, got a little book from where she had left it under the chair, smoothed down her skirts, and began simultaneously to read and suck her thumb. The book was an unhealthy one, a cup filled to the brim with a poverty-stricken and selfish religion. Such are always breaking out like an eruption here and there over the body of church. It is wonderful out of what spoiled fruit some children will suck sweetness. But she did not read far. Her thoughts went back to a phrase which had haunted her ever since she first went to church. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. I wish he would chasten me, she thought for the hundredth time. The small Christian had no suspicion that her whole life had been a period of chastening, that few children indeed had to live in such a sunless atmosphere as hers. Alice threw down the newspaper, gazed from the window into the backyard of the next house, saw nothing but an elderly manservant brushing a garment and turned upon Sophie. Why don't you hang up your jacket, miss? 
she said sharply. The little one rose, opened the wardrobe door wide, carried a chair to it, fetched her jacket from the bed, clambered up onto the chair, and leaning forward to reach a peg, tumbled right into the bottom of the wardrobe. You clumsy, exclaimed the nurse angrily, and pulling her out by the arm shook her. Alice was not generally rough to her, but there were reasons today. Fozzie crapped back to her seat, pale, frightened, and a little hurt. Alice hung up the jacket, closed the wardrobe, and, turning, contemplated her own pretty face and neat figure in the glass opposite. The dinner bell rang. There, I declare, she cried and wheeled round on Fozzie. And your hair not brushed yet, miss. Will you ever learn to do a thing without being told it? Thank goodness I shan't be plugged with you long. But I pity her as comes after me, I do. If the Lord would but chasten me, said the child to herself, as she rose and laid down her book with a sigh. The maze seized her roughly by the arm and brushed her hair with an angry haste that made the child's eyes water and herself feel a little ashamed at the sight of them. How could anybody love such a troublesome child, she said, seeking the comfort of justification from the child herself. Another sigh was the poor little damsel's only answer. She looked very white and solemn as she entered the dining room. Mr. Greydricks was a merchant in the city, but he was more of a man than a merchant, which all merchants are not. Also, he was more scrupulous in his dealings than some merchants in the same line of business. Some six years before, he had married to please his parents, and a year before, he had married to please himself. His first wife had intellect, education, and heart, but little individuality, not enough to reflect the individuality of her husband. The consequence was, he found her uninteresting. He was kind and indulgent, however, and not even her best friend blamed him much for manifesting nothing beyond the average devotion of husbands. But in truth, his wife had great capabilities. Only, they had never ripened. And when she died, a fortnight after giving birth to Sophie, her husband had not a suspicion of the large amount of undeveloped power that had passed away with her. Her child was so like her, in both countenance and manner, that he was too constantly reminded of her unlamented mother. Love alone gives insight, and the father took her merely for a miniature edition of the volume which he seemed to lay aside forever in the dust. Instead, therefore, of watering the roots of his little human slip from the well of his affections, he had scarcely as yet perceived more in relation to her than that he was legally accounted for her existence and bound to give her shelter and food. If he had questioned himself on the matter, he would have replied that love was not wanting, only waiting upon her growth and the development of something to interest him. Little right, as he had had to expect anything from his first marriage, he had yet cherished some hopes therein. He still harbored the presumptuous hope of so choosing and so fashioning the heart and mind of a woman that they should be as concave mirrors to his own. I do not mean that he would have admitted this, but such was really the end he plainly sought. I wonder how many of those who have been disappointed in such an attempt have been thereby aroused to the perception of what frightful failure their success would have been on both sides. Letty Merweather was the daughter of a bishop. She had been tolerably innocent, had grown up more than tolerably pretty, and was, when she came to England at the age of 16, as nearly a genuine example of Locke's sheet of white paper as could well have fallen by the hand of such experimenter as Greatorex was wanted to become. In his suit, he has prospered, perhaps too easily. He loved the girl, or at least loved the modified reflection of her in his own mind, while she, thoroughly admiring the dignity, good looks, and accomplishment of the man whose attentions flattered her self-opinion, accorded him deference enough to encourage her vainest hopes. Although she knew little, Fluttering over the merest surfaces of existence, she had sense enough to know that he talked sense to her, and foolishness enough to put it down to her own credit, while for the sense itself she cared little or nothing. And Greatorix, without even knowing what she was roughing for, would take upon him to shape her ends, an ambition the divinity never permits to succeed. He who fancies himself the carver finds himself but the chisel, or indeed perhaps only the mallet, in the hand of a true workman. During the days of his courtship, then, Letty listened and smiled, or answered, with what he took for a spiritual response, when it was merely a brain echo. Looking down into the pond of her being, whose surface was not yet ruffled by any bubblings or springs from below, 
he saw the reflection of himself and was satisfied. Augustus Greatorex was fooled, not by the poor little Letty, who was not capable of fooling him, but by himself. Letty had made no pretenses, had been interested, and had shown her interest, had understood or seemed to understand what he said to her, and forgotten it the next moment, had no pocket to put it in, did not know what to do with it, and let it drop into the limbo of vanity. They had not been married many days before the scouts of advancing disappointment were upon them. Augustus resisted manfully for a time. But the truth was, each of the two had become a great deal more than either was, before any approach to unity was possible. He tried to interest her in one subject after another, tried her first, I'm ashamed to say, with political economy. In that instance, when he came home to dinner, he found that she had not got beyond the first page of the book he had left with her. But she had the best of excuses, namely, that of that page she did not understand a sentence. He saw his mistake and tried her with poetry. He tried her with the next elements of science, but with no better success. He returned to poetry and read some of it, The Fairy Queen, with her. She was, or seemed to be, interested in all his talk about it and inclined to go on in his absence, but found the first stanza she tried more than enough without him to give life to it. She could give it none and therefore gave none. I believe she read a chapter of the Bible every day, but the only books she read with any real interest were novels of the sort Augustus despised. He ought to have read with her the books she did like, for by them only could he make her think, and from them alone could he lead her to better. It is but from the very first step upon which one stands that one can move to the next. Besides these books, there was nothing in her scheme of the universe but fashion, dress, calls, the park, other peopledom, concerts, plays, church-going, whatever could show itself on the frosted glass of her camera obscure. Without these, she would have found life unendurable, for not yet had she ascended her throne but lay on the floor of her nursery surrounded with toys that imitated life. It was no wonder, therefore, that Augustus was at length compelled to allow himself disappointed. He was too much of a man not to cherish a certain tenderness for her, but he soon found to his dismay that it had begun to be mingled with the shadow of contempt. Against this he struggled, but with fluctuating success. He stopped later and later at his business, and when he came home spent more and more of his time in the smoking room, where by and by he had bookshelves put up. Occasionally, he would accept an invitation to dinner and accompany his wife, but he detested evening parties. And when Letty, who never refused an invitation if she could help it, went to one, he remained at home with his books. But his power of reading them began to diminish. He became restless and irritable. Something kept gnawing at his heart. There was a sore spot in it. The spot grew larger and larger, and by degrees the center of his consciousness came to be a soreness. His cherished idea had been fooled. He had taken a silly girl for a woman of undeveloped wealth, a bubble for a hearted crystal. On her part, Letty too had her grief, which, unlike Augustus, she did not keep to herself, receiving in return from more than one of her friends the soothing assurance that Augustus was only like all other men, that women were but their toys which they cast away when they were weary of them. Letty did not see that she was herself making a toy of her life, or that Augustus was right in refusing to play with such a costly and delicate thing. And all the time, poor little Fozy was less to the care of Alice, a clever, careless, good-hearted, self-satisfied damsel, who, although seldom so rough in her behavior as we just seen her, abandoned the child almost entirely to her own resources. It was often she sat alone in the nursery, wishing the Lord would chasten her, because then he would love her. The first course was nearly over when Augustus brought himself to ask, What did you think of the sermon today, Letty? Not much, answered Letty. I'm not fond of finery. I prefer simplicity. Augustus held his peace bitterly, for it was just finery in a sermon without knowing it that Letty was fond of. What seemed to him a flimsy syllabub of sacred things, beaten up with the whisk of composition, was charming to Letty. Presently she spoke again. Gus, dear, couldn't you make up your mind for once to go with me to Lady Ashdale's tomorrow? I'm getting quite ashamed of appearing so often without you. There's another way of avoiding that unpleasantness, remarked the husband dryly. You cruel creature, returned Letty playfully. But I must go this once, for I promised Mrs. Holden. You know, Letty, said her husband after a little pause, it gets more of more consequence that you should not fatigue yourself. 
By keeping such late hours in such stifling rooms, you are endangering two lives. Remember that, Letty. If you stay at home tomorrow, I will come home early and read to you all the evening. Gussie, that would be charming. You know there's nothing in the world I should enjoy so much. But this time, I really mustn't. She launched into a list of all the great nobodies and small somebodies who were to be there and whom she positively must see. It might be her only chance. Those last words quenched a sarcasm on Augustus's lips. He was kinder than usual the rest of the evening and read her to sleep with Pilgrim's Progress. Fozy sat in a corner, listened, and understood. Or where she misunderstood, it was an honest misunderstanding, which never does much hurt. Neither father nor mother spoke to her till they bade her good night. Neither saw the hungry heart under the mask of the still face. The father never imagined her already fit for the modeling she was better without. And the stepmother had to become a mother before she could value her. Fozzie went to bed to dream of the Valley of Humiliation. The next morning, Alice gave her mistress warning. It was quite unexpected, and she looked at her aghast. Alice, she said at length, you're never going to leave me at such a time. I'm sorry it doesn't suit you, ma'am, but I must. Why, Alice? What is the matter? Has Sophie been troublesome? No, ma'am, there's no harm in that child. Then what can it be, Alice? Perhaps you're going to be married sooner than you expected? Alice gave her chin a little toss, pressed her lips together, and was silent. I've always been kind to you, resumed her mistress. I'm sure, ma'am, I've made no complaints, returned Alice. But as she spoke, she drew herself straighter than before. Then what is it? said her mistress. The fact is, ma'am, answered the girl almost fiercely, I cannot any longer endure a state of domestic slavery. I don't understand you a bit better, said Mrs. Gretorix, trying but in vain to smile, and therefore looking angrier than she was. I mean, ma'am, and I see no reason as I shouldn't say it, but it's the truth. There's a worm at the root of society where one human being's got to do the dirty work of another. I don't mind sweeping up my own dust, but I won't sweep up nobody else's. I ain't a-going to demean myself no longer. There. Leave the room, Alice, said Mrs. Gratorix. And when, with a toss and a flounce, the young woman had vanished, she burst into tears of anger and annoyance. The day passed. The evening came. She dressed without Alice's usual help and went to Lady Ashdale's with her friend. There, a reaction took place, and her spirits rose unnaturally. She even danced to the disgust of one or two quick-eyed matrons who sat by the wall. When she came home, she found her husband sitting up for her. He said next to nothing and sat up an hour longer with his book. In the night, she was taken ill. Her husband called Alice and ran himself to fetch the doctor. For some hours, she seemed in danger, but by noon, she was much better. Only the greatest care was necessary. As soon as she could speak, she told Augustus of Alice's warning, and he sent for her to the library. She stood before him with flushed cheeks and flashing eyes. Now you understand, Alice, you've given your mistress warning, he said gently. Yes, sir. Your mistress is very ill, Alice. Yes, sir. Don't you think it would be ungrateful of you to leave her in the present condition? She's not likely to be strong for some time to come. The use of the word ungrateful was an unfortunate one. Alice begged to know what she had to be grateful for. Was her work worth nothing? Well, Alice, he said, we won't dispute that point. And if you are really determined on going, you must do your best you can for the mistress for the rest of the month. Alice's sense of injury was soothed by her master's forbearance. She had always rather approved of Mr. Greatorix, and she left the room more softly than she had entered it. Letty had a fortnight in bed, during which she reflected a little. The very next day on which she left her room, Alice sought an interview with her master and declared she could not stay out her month. She must go home at once. She had been very attentive to her mistress during the fortnight. There must be something to account for her strange behavior. Come now, Alice, said her master. What's at the back of all of this? You've been a good, well-behaved, obliging girl till now, and I'm certain you would never be like this if there weren't something wrong somewhere. Something wrong, sir? No, indeed, sir. Except you call it wrong to have an old uncle as dies and leaves ever so much money. Thousands on thousands, the lawyers say. And does it come to you then, Alice? I get my share, sir. He left it to be parted, even between his nephews and nieces. 
Why, Alice, you're quite an heiress, then, returned her master, scarcely, however, believing the thing so grand as Alice would have it. But don't you think now it would be rather hard that your fortune should be Mrs. Greatorex's misfortune? Well, I don't see as how it shouldn't, replied Alice. It's Mrs. Fortune, as it's been my misfortune, ain't it now, sir? And why shouldn't it be the other way next? I don't quite see how your mistress's fortune can be said to be your misfortune, Alice. Anybody would see that, sir, as wasn't blinded by your class prejudices. Class prejudices? exclaimed Mr. Greatorex in surprise at the word. It's a term they use, I believe, sir. But it's plain enough that if Mrs. hadn't have been better off than me, she wouldn't have been able to secure my services, as you call them. That is certainly plain enough, returned Mr. Greatrix. But suppose nobody had been able to secure your services. What would have become of you? By that time, the people had rose to assert their rights. To what? To fortunes like yours? To bread and cheese, at least, sir, returned Alice pertly. Well, but you have something better than bread and cheese. I don't make no complaints as to the style of living in the house, sir, but that's all one, so long as on the vile condition of domestic slavery, which it's nothing can justify. Then, of course, although you are now a woman of property, you will never dream as having anyone wait on you, said the master, amused with the volume of human nature thus open to him. All I say, sir, is it's my turn now, and I ain't going to be sit upon by no one. I know my duty to myself. I didn't know there was such a duty, Alice, said her master. Something in his tone displeased her. Then you know now, sir, she said and bounced out of the room. That next moment, however, ashamed of her rudeness, she re-entered, saying, I don't want to be unkind, sir, but I must go home. I've got a brother that's ill, too, and wants to see me. If you don't object to me going home for a month, I promise you to come back and see Mrs. through her trouble, as a friend, you know, sir. But just listen to me first, Alice, said Mr. Greatorex. I've had something to do with wills in my time, and I can assure you it is not likely to be less than a year before you can touch the money. You had better stay where you are till your uncle's affair are settled. You don't know what happens. There's many a slip between cup and lip, you know. Oh, it's all right, sir. Everybody knows the money is left to his nephews and nieces, and me and my brothers as good as any. I don't doubt it. Still, you'll take my advice, you'll keep a sound roof over your head till another's ready for you. Alice only threw her chin in the air and said almost threateningly, Am I to go for a month, sir? I'll talk to your mistress about it, answered Mr. Greatorex, not at all sure that an arrangement would be for his wife's comfort. But the next day, Mrs. Greatorex had a long talk with Alice, and the result was that on the following Monday she was to go home for a month and then return for two months, more at least. What Mr. Greatorex had said about the legacy had had its effect, and besides, her mistress had spoken to her with pleasure in her good fortune. About Sophie, no one felt any anxiety. She was trouble for no one, and the housemaid would see to her. On the Sunday evening, Alice's lover, having heard, not from herself, but by a side wind, that she was going home the next day, made his appearance in Winborn Square, somewhat perplexed, both at the move and at her leaving him in ignorance of the same. He was a cabinet maker in an honest shop in the neighborhood, and in education, faculty, and general worth, considerably Alice's superior, a fact which had hitherto rather pleased her, but now gave zest to the change which she had imagined had subverted their former relation. Full of a sense of her now superiority, she met him draped in an indescribable strangeness. John Jepson felt, at the very first word, as if her voice came from the other side of the English Channel. He wondered what he had done, or rather, what Alice could imagine he had done or said to put her in such tantrums. Alice, my dear, he said, for John was a man to go straight to the enemy. What's amiss? What's come over you? You may all together yourself tonight. And here I find you're going away and never a word to me about it. What have I done? Alice's chin alone made a reply. She waited the fitting moment with splendor to astonish and with grandeur to subdue her lover to tell the sad truth. She was no longer sure it would be well to encourage him on the old footing. Was she not standing on tiptoe, her skirts in her hand, on the brink of the brook that parted serfdom from a gentility? On the point of stepping daintily across and leaving domestic slavery, red hands, caps, and obedience behind her. 
How then was she to marry a man that had black nails and smelt of glue? It was incumbent on her, at least for propriety's sake, to render him at once aware that it was in condescension ineffable she took any notice of him. Alice, my girl, began John again in expulsatory tone. Miss Cox, if you please, John Jeffson, interposed Alice. What on earth's come over you? exclaimed John, with the first throb of rousing indignation. But if you ain't your old self no more, why, Miss Cox, be it. You see, John, she said with dignity, keeping her back towards him and pretending to dust a globe of a lamp. There's things as no woman can help, and therefore, as no man has no right to complain of them. It's not as if I'd gone and done it or changed myself, no more than if it had taken place in my cradle. What can I help but if the world goes and changes itself? Am I to blame? Tell me that. It's not that I make no complaint, but I tell you it ain't me. It's circumstances, as it's gone and changed theirselves. And being as circumstances has changed, things ain't the same as it was. And miss is the properer term from you to me, John Jeffson. Dang it if I know what you're driving at, Alice, Miss Cox. And I beg your pardon, miss. I'm sure. Dang me if I do. Don't swear, John Jeffson, leastways before a lady. It's not proper. I wouldn't take no liberties with a lady, Miss Cox. But if I might be so bold as to arse the joke of the thing. Joke indeed, cried Alice. Do you call a dead uncle and ten thousand pounds a joke? God bless me, said John. You don't mean it, Alice. I do mean it. And that you'll find, John Jeffson, I'm going to bid you goodbye tomorrow. What I mean is... You don't mean how all this air money, dang it all, and how it's going to be over between you and me. You can't mean that, Alice, ended the poor fellow with a choking in his throat. It was very hard upon him. He must either look as if it wanted to share her money or else he were ready to give her up. Arst yourself, John Jeffson, answered Alice, whether it's likely a young lady of fortune would be keeping company with a young man as didn't know how to take off his hat to keep her in the park. Alice did not above half mean what she said. She wished mainly to enhance her own importance. At the same time, she did mean it half, and that would have been enough for Jeffson. He rose, goodbye, Alice, he said, taking the hand she did not refuse. You're throwing for you what all your money can't buy. She gave a scornful little laugh, hm, and John walked out of the kitchen. At the door, he turned with one lingering look but in Alice there was no sign of softening. She turned scornfully away and no doubt enjoyed her triumph to the full. The next morning she went away. Mr. Greatrix had ceased to regard the advent of Christmas with much interest. Naturally gifted with a strong religious tendency he had since his first marriage taken not to denial, but to the side of objection. Spending much energy in the contempt for the foolish opinions of others, Greatorix had been indulging his intellect at the expense of his heart. A man may have light in the brain and darkness in his heart. He had set out on a false track altogether, but had not yet discovered that there had been an immoral element at work in his mistake. For what right had he to desire the fashioning of any woman after his ideas? Did not the angel of her eternal ideal forever behold the face of her father in heaven? The best that can be said for him is... He still loved her a little. Hence the care he showed for her in respect of the coming sorrow was genuine. It did not all belong to his desire for a son, to whom he might be a father indeed, after his own fancies, however. Letty, on her part, was as full of expectation as a girl who'd been promised a doll that she can shut and open his eyes and cry when it's pinched. Her carelessness of its safe arrival came of ignorance and not indifference. It cannot but seem strange that such a man would have been so careless of the child he had. But from the first she had painfully reminded him of her mother, with whom in truth he had never quarreled, but with whom he had not found life less irksome on that account. Add to this that he had been growing fonder of his business, a fact which indicated in a man of endowment and development an inclination downwards on the plane of his life. It was some time since he had given up reading poetry. History had almost followed. He had now read little, except politics, travels, and popular ex expositions of scientific progress. That year, Christmas Eve fell upon a Monday. 
The day before, Letty was not feeling very well. Her husband thought it better to not leave her and gave up going to church. Bosie was utterly forgotten, but she dressed herself and at the usual hour appeared with her prayer book in hand ready for church. When her father told her that he was not accompanying, she looked so blank that he took pity on her and accompanied her to the church door, promising to meet her as she came out. Bosie sighed from relief as she entered, for the vague idea that going to church to pray for how she might move the Lord to chasten her. At least he would see her there and might think of it. She had never had such attention from her father before, never such dignity conferred upon her as to be allowed to appear a church in loan, sitting in the pew by herself like a grown damsel. But I doubt if there was any pride in her stately step or any vanity in the smile too, no, not smiled, but illuminated miss, the vapor of smiles which haunted her sweet little solemn church window of a face, and she walked up the aisle. The preacher was one of whom she had never heard her father speak slighting word in whom her unbounding trust had never been shaken. Also, he was the one who believed with his whole soul in the things that made Christmas precious. To him, the birth of the wonderful baby hinted at hundreds of strange things. That a man could so thoroughly persuade himself that he believed the old fable was matter of marvel to some of his friends who held blind nature the eternal mother and night the everlasting grandmother of all things. But the child Fozy would have believed, or tried to believe, anything that did not involve a moral impossibility. What the preacher said, I need not even partially repeat. It is enough to mention a certain metamorphosed deposit from the stream of his eloquence carried home in our mind by Fozy. From some of his sayings about the birth of Jesus into the world, or into the family, into the individual human bosom, she had got it in her head that Christmas Day was not a birthday like she had herself last year but that in some wonderful way to her requiring no explanation, the baby Jesus was born every Christmas day afresh. What became of him afterwards, she did not know. And indeed, she had never thought to ask how it was that he would come into every house in London, as well as number one Wimborne Square. Little of a home, as others might think it, that house was yet to her the center of all houses, and the wonder had not yet widened rippling beyond it, into that spot of the pool the internal gift would fall. Her father forgot the time over his book, but so entranced was her heart with the expectation of the promised visit now so near the day after tomorrow, that if she did not altogether forget to look for him as she stepped down the stair from the church door to the street, his absence caused her no uneasiness, and when, just as she reached it, he opened the door to the house door— in tardy haste to redeem his promise. She looked up at him with a solemn, smileless repose, born of spiritual tension and speechless anticipation upon her face, and walking past him without changing her rhythm of her motion, marched stately up the stairs to the nursery. I believe the center of her hope was that when the baby came, she would beg him on her knees to ask the Lord to chasten her. When dessert was over, her mother on the sofa in the drawing room and her father in an easy chair with a bottle of his favorite wine by his side, she crept out of the room and again away into the nursery. There, she reached up to her little bookshelf and full of the sermon a spongy mist are full in the sunlight, took thence a volume of stories from the German, the rereading of one of which narrating the visit of the Christ child laden with gifts to a certain household and what he gave to each and all therein. She had, although sorely tempted, saved up until now, and sat down with it by the fire, the only light she had. When the housemaid, suddenly remembering she must put her to bed, and at the same time discovering it was a whole hour past her usual time, hurried to the nursery, she found her fast asleep in her little armchair, her book on her lap, and the fire self-consumed into the dark cave with the somber glow in its deepest hollows. Dreams had doubtless come where she slowly yielded to the hands of Polly putting her to bed, her lips unconsciously moved out of the slumbering, but not sleeping spirit, more than once murmured the words, Lord loveth and chasteneth. Right blessedly would I enter the dreams of such a child, revel in them as a bee in the heavenly gulf of a cactus flower. On Christmas Eve, the church bells were ringing through the murky air of London, whose streets lay flaring and steaming below. The brightest of their constellations were the butcher shops with their shows of prized beefs around them, the eddies of the human tides were most confused and knotted. But the toy shops were brilliant also. 
To Fozzie, they would have been the treasure caves of the Christ child, all mysteries, all with insights to them, boxes and desks and windmills and dovecots and hens with chickens, and who could tell what all? In every one of those shops, her eyes would have searched for the crush child, the giver of all her wealth. For to her, he was everywhere that night, ubiquitous as a luminous mist that brooded all over London, of which, however, she saw nothing but the glow above the muse. It had been a troublesome fortnight for Mrs. Greatericks. She wished much that she could have talked to her husband more freely, but she had not learned to feel at home with him. Yet, he had been kinder and more attentive than usual at this time, so much that Letty thought with herself, if she gave him a boy, he would certainly return to his first devotion. She said boy because he only cared little for Fozzy. She never discovered that he was disappointed in herself. That night, the mistress was again taken ill. Doctor and nurse were sent in for a hot haste. Handsome cabs came and went throughout the night like noisy moths to the one lighted house in the street. There were soft steps within, and doors were gently open and shut. Lenny did not know that her husband was watching by her bedside. The street was quiet now. So was the house. Most of its people had been up throughout the night, and now they'd all gone to bed except the nurse and Mr. Greatericks. It was the morning of Christmas Day, and little Fozzie knew it in every cranny of her soul. She was not one of those who had been up all night, but now she was awake, early and wide, and the moment she awoke, she was speculating. He was coming today. How would he come? Where should she find the baby Jesus? And when would he come? In the morning or the afternoon or the evening? Could such a grief be in store for her that he would not appear until night when she would again be in bed? But she would not sleep till all hope was gone. Would everybody be gathered to meet him or would he show himself to one after another, each alone? Then her turn would be last. And oh, if he would not come to the nursery. But perhaps he would not appear to her at all, for was she not one whom the Lord did not care to chasten? Expectation grew and wrought in her until she could lie in bed no longer. Alice was fast asleep. It must be early, but whether it was yet light or not, she couldn't tell for the curtains. Anyhow, she would get up and dress, and then she would be ready for Jesus. Truth, she was not able to dress herself very well, but he would know, and he would not mind. She made all the hay she could, consistently, with taking pains, and was soon attired after a fashion. She crept out of the room and down the stair. The house was very still. What if Jesus should come and find nobody's awake? Would he go again and give them no presents? She couldn't expect any herself, but might he not let her take theirs for the rest? Perhaps she ought to wake them all, but she dared not without being sure. On the last landing above the first floor, she saw by the low gaslight at the end of the corridor an unknown figure past the foot of the stair. Could she have anything to do with the marvel of the day? The woman looked up and Fozzie dropped the question. Yet she might be a charwoman whose assistance the expected advent rendered necessary. When she reached the bottom of the stair, she saw her disappearing into her stepmother's room. That she did not like. It was the one room in which she could not go. But as the house was so still, she would search everywhere else, and if she did not find him, would then sit down in the hall and wait for him. The room next to the foot of the stairs and opposite her stepmother's was a spare room, with which she associated ideas of date and grandeur. Where better could she begin than at the guest chamber? There! Could it be? Yes! Through the chink of the scarce closed door, she saw light. Either he was already there, or there they were expecting him. From that moment, she felt as if lifted out of her body. Far exalted above all dread, she peeped modestly in, and then entered. Beyond the foot of the bed, a candle stood on the little low table, and nobody was to be seen. There was a stool near the table. She would sit on it by the candle and wait for him. But ere she reached it, she caught sight of something upon the bed that drew her thither. She stood entranced. Could it be? It might be. Perhaps he had left it there. The loveliest of dolls ever imagined. She drew nearer. The light was low and the shadows were many. She could not be sure what it was. But when she had gone close up to it, she concluded with certainty that it was in the very truth a doll. 
perhaps intended for her, but beyond doubt the most exquisite of dolls. She dragged a chair to the bed, got up, pushed her little arm softly under it, and drawing it gently to her, slid down with it. When she felt her feet firm on the floor, filled with the solemn composure of holy awe, she carried the gift of the child Jesus to the candle, that she might the better admire its beauty and know its preciousness. But the light had no sooner fallen upon it than a strange, undefinable doubt awoke within her. Whatever it was, it was the very essence of loveliness, the tiny darling with its alabaster face and its delicately modeled hands and fingers. A long nightgown covered the rest. Was it possible? Could it be? Yes, indeed, it must be. It could be nothing else than a real baby. What a goose she had been. Of course it was the baby Jesus himself. For was not this very own Christmas day on which he was born? If she had felt awe of this gift before, what a grandeur of adoring love, what a divine dignity possessed her holding in her arms the very child himself. One shudder of bliss passed through her, and in agony of possession she clasped the baby to her great heart, then at once became still with the satisfaction of eternity with the peace of God. She sat down on the stool near the little table with her back to the candle that its rays should not fall on the eyes of the sleeping Jesus and wake him. There she sat, lost in the very majesty of bliss, at once the mother and the slave of the Lord Jesus. She sat for a time still as marble, waiting for marble to awake, heedful as tenderest woman not to rouse him before his time, though her heart was swelling with the eager petition that he would ask his father to be as good as chasten her. And as she sat, she began, after her want, to model her face to the likeness of his, that she might understand his stillness, the absolute peace that dwelt on his countenance. But as she did so, again, a sudden doubt invaded her. Jesus lay so very still, never moved, never opened his pale eyelids. And now, set thinking, she noted that he did not breathe. She had seen baby asleep, and their breath came and went, their little bosoms heaped up and down, and sometimes they would smile, and sometimes they would moan and sigh, but Jesus did none of all those things. Was it not strange? And then he was cold, oh, so cold. A blue silk cover lid lay on the bed. She half rose and dragged it off and contrived to wind it around herself and the baby. Sad at heart, very sad, but undismayed, she sat and watched him on her lap. Meantime, the morning of Christmas Day grew. The light came and filled the house. The sleepers slept late, but at length they stirred. Alice awoke last from a troubled sleep in which the events of the night mingled with her own lost condition and destiny. After all, Polly had been kind, she thought, and got Sophie up without disturbing her. She had been but a few minutes down when a strange and appalling rumor made itself, I cannot say audible, but somehow known throughout the house, and everyone hurried up in horrible dismay. The nurse had gone into the spare room and missed the little dead thing she had laid there. The bed was between her and Fozzie, and she never saw her, the doctor had been sharp with her about something the night before. She now took revenge and suspicion of him, and after a hasty and fruitless visit of inquiry to the kitchen, hurried to Mr. Griderick's. The servants crowded to the spare room, and when their master, incredulous indeed, yet shocked at the tidings brought him, hastened to the spot, he found them all in the room gathered at the foot of the bed. A little sunlight filtered through the red window curtains and gave a strange, pallid expression to the flame of the candle— which had now burned very low. At first he saw nothing but the group of servants, silent, motionless, intently gazing. He had come just in time. Another moment and they would have ruined the lovely sight. He stepped forward and saw Fozzy, half shrouded in blue, the candle behind illuminating the hair she had found too rebellious to brush, and making of it a faint aureole above her head and white face, whence cold and sorrow had driven all the flesh, rendering it colorless, as that upon her arm, which had never seen the light. She had poured on the little face until she knew death, and now she sat a speechless mother of sorrow, bending in the dim light of the tomb of the body of her holy infant. How it was, I cannot tell, but the moment her father saw her, she looked up, and the spell of her dumbness broke. 
Jesus is dead, she said slowly and sadly, but with perfect calmness. He is dead, she repeated. He came too early and there was no one up to take care of him and he's dead, dead, dead. But as she spoke the last words, the frozen lump of agony gave way. The well of her heart suddenly filled, swelled, overflowed. The last word was a half sob, half shriek of utter despair and loss. Alice darted forward and took the baby tenderly from her. The same moment her father raised the little mother and clasped her to his bosom. Her arms went around his neck. Her head sank on his shoulder in sobbing and grievous misery. Yet already a little comforted, he bore her from the room. No, no, Fozy, they heard him said. Jesus is not dead, thank God. It's only your little brother that hadn't had life enough and has gone back to God for more. Weeping, the woman went down the stairs. Alice's tears were still flowing when John Jeffson entered. Her own troubles forgotten in the emotion of the scene she had just witnessed, she ran to his arms and wept on his bosom. John stood as one astonished. Oh, Lord, this is a Christmas, he sighed at last. Oh, John, cried Alice and tore herself from his embrace. I forgot you'll never speak to me again, John. Don't do it, John. And with the word, she gave a stifled cry and fell weeping again behind two shielding hands. Why, Alice, you ain't married, are you? gasped John, to whom that was the only possible evil. No, John, and never shall be. A respectable man like you would never think of looking twice at a poor girl like me. Let's have one more look, anyhow, said John, drawing her hands from her face. Tell me what's the matter, and if there's anything can be done to right you. I'll work day and night to do it, Alice. There's nothing can be done, John, replied Alice, and told her tale, not even admitting the fact that, when she went to the eldest of the cousins, inheriting through the misfortune of her and her brother, so much more than their expected share, and demeaned herself to beg for a little help from her brother who was dying of consumption, he had all but ordered her out of the house, swearing he had nothing to do with her or her brother, and saying she ought to be ashamed to show her face. And that when we used to make mud pies together, concluded Alice with indignation, there, John, you have it all, she added, and now? With the word, she gave a deep, humbly questioning look into his honest eyes. Is that all, Alice? he asked. Yes, John, ain't it enough? she returned. More'n enough, answered John. I swear to you, Alice, you're worth to me ten times more than you would have been if you had had me with ten thousand pounds in your ridicule. Why, my woman, I never saw you look one half as handsome than you do now. But the disgrace of it, John, said Alice, hanging her head, and so hiding the pleasure that would dawn all the mist of her misery. Let your father and mother settle that betwixt them, Alice. Take none of my business. Please, God, we'll do different. When shall it be, my girl? When you like, John, answered Alice. I do believe, John, money ain't a good thing. Sure as I live with the very wind of that money, the devil entered into me. Didn't you hate me, John? Speak the truth now. No, Alice. I did cry a bit over you, though. You was possessed like. I was possessed. I do believe if that money hadn't been took from me, I'd have never had you, John. Ain't it awful to think on? Mind you, you're mine now, Alice, and what's mine's mine, and I won't have it abused. I know you twice the woman you was afore, and all the world couldn't get me such another Christmas box. No, not if it was all gold watches and roast beef. When Mr. Greatorex returned to his wife's room and thought to find her asleep as he had left her, he was dismayed to hear sounds of soft weeping from the bed. Hush, hush, he said, with more love in his heart than had moved there for many months, and therefore more in his tone than she had heart for as many. If you cry, you'll be ill. Hush, my dear. In a moment, ere he could prevent her, she had flung her arms around his neck, and he stooped over to her. Husband, husband, she cried, is it my fault? You behaved perfectly, he returned. No woman could have been braver. Ah, oh, but I wouldn't stay at home when you wanted me. Never mind that now, my child, he said. At the word, she pulled his face down to hers. I have you, and I don't care, he added. Do you care to have me? She said with a sob that ended in a loud cry. Oh, I don't deserve it. But I will be good after this. I promise you I will. 
Then you must begin now, my darling. You must lie perfectly still and not cry a bit, or you will go after the baby and I shall be left alone. She looked up at him with such a light in her face as he had never dreamed of there before. He had never seen her so lovely. Then she withdrew her arms, repressed her tears, smiled, and turned her face away. That night, when Fozzy and her father had sat down to their Christmas dinner, he rose again, and taking her up as she sat, chair and all, set her down close to him, on the other side of the corner of the table. It was the first of a new covenant between them. The father's eyes, having been suddenly opened to her character and preciousness, as well as to his own neglected duty in regard to her, it was as if a well of life had burst forth at his feet. And every day, as he looked into her face and talked to her, it was with more and more respect for what he found in her, with growing tenderness for her predilections and reverence for the divine idea enclosed in her ignorance, for her childish wisdom and her calm seeking until at length he would have been horrified at the thought of training her up in his way. Had she not a way of her own to go, following, not the dead Jesus, but him who liveth forevermore? In the endeavor to help her, he had to find his own position toward the truth, and the results were weighty. In his relationship with her, he was so often reminded of his first wife, and that with the gloss or comment of a childish reproduction, that his memories of her at length grew a little tender. He began to understand the nature and worth of the mother. In her child, she had given him what she could not be herself. Unable to keep up with him, she had handed him her baby and dropped on the path. Nor was little Sophie his own comfort. Through their common loss and her husband's tenderness, Letty began to grow a woman. And her growth was the more rapid that, himself taught through Fozzy, her husband no longer desired to make her adopt his taste and judge with his experience, but, as became the elder and the tribe, entered into her taste and experiences, became, as it were, a child again with her, that through the thing she was, he might help the thing she had to be. As soon as she was able to bear it, he told her the story of the dead Jesus, and with the tale came to her heart love for Fozzie. She had lost a son for a season, but she had gained a daughter forever. Such were the gifts the Christ child brought to the household that Christmas. Thank you, Abigail, for a moving reading. This story was edited freely for clarity, and the story is in the public domain, so... Uh, if you want to find it, it's available online in, through various sources, and uh, we hope you enjoyed it, and come back and hear us next time on Conversation Balloons. Thanks for listening to Conversation Balloons. Look for more episodes and information at leahfarish.com. That's L-E-A-H-F-A-R-I-S-H dot com. And follow me on Facebook and Instagram.